you remember what it was like when you were um, younger and they would uh, want to line you all up for family pictures? Remember that? They'd snap the picture and then afterwards you'd look at it and you would just go, oh, I hate family pictures, right? Now, what was it about the family picture that you didn't like? Well, I suspect that you, like I, didn't like the way we looked in the family picture. We didn't like what the camera captured. It's kind of the same experience for those of you who uh, have had your voice recorded. Afterwards, you listen to a recording of your voice and you go, do I really sound like that? I mean, from my end, it sounds like the voice of the first person of the Godhead, but, you know, it sounds like Daffy Duck when I hear it on tape, right? Yeah. But you know what's... Even worse than seeing yourself and hearing yourself is understanding the reality that is what you look like and indeed that's what you sound like. That is the real you, not the carefully constructed image that you have in your own mind. This morning we're going to be looking together, or beginning to look together at I, what I believe to be one of the most difficult sections of Scripture in the entire Bible. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, is a section of Scripture through which the inspired, Spirit-inspired pen of the Apostle Paul rips the thin veneer from us. That which we have carefully constructed, at least in our own minds, as to how we perceive ourselves and how we want others to perceive us, it's ripped right off and the jagged, ugly edges of the inside are revealed for all to see. We can't hide anymore. We see ourselves for how we really are. For how God sees us. And it's worse than a family portrait. It's worse than hearing yourself recorded. It's an exposure of the very depths of your own wicked heart. We're looking this morning at Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. You're using a Pew Bible, it's page 1125. We're going to look just at this one verse this morning, verse 18. A verse that talks about the wrath of God. And beloved, the wrath of God is a dominant teaching of the Scriptures. It's not just some passing reference. According to A.W. Pink, Bible expositor of prior generation in his book, The Sovereignty of God. He writes, and I quote, a study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to His love and tenderness. 
The Bible, he says, talks more about God's anger, His wrath, His fury, than it speaks of His love and His tenderness. That's because there is an essential relationship between God's righteousness and His wrath. If God is truly holy, as the Bible says He is, then He must be angered by sin. He must. If God were to tolerate sin and unrighteousness, it would call His holiness into question. It's more than of a passing note, beloved, that Paul begins his formal exposition of the Gospel recorded for us here in the pages of the book of Romans with the wrath of God. This is where he begins his Gospel presentation. It's not just some passing point. Something he'll get to in time. He begins here. For the wrath of God, he says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 18 begins with a conjunction for gar in the Greek, and that normally, grammatically, introduces a reason or an explanation for a prior statement in the text. Last two weeks ago, we saw in that relationship in verses 16 and 17, you hopefully remember something about that, where Paul said at the end of verse 15, he was eager to preach the Gospel to you who are in Rome. And then we found three of these gar statements, or three times the conjunction four in verses 16 and 17, whereby Paul gave his reason for why he was eager to preach the Gospel. He said in verse, the beginning of verse 16, because or for, he is not ashamed of the Gospel. He said in the second half of verse 16, for or because it is the power of God for salvation. And then verse 17, he says again, because or for, it is, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Verse 18 begins grammatically the same way. And so there is some linkage here within the text that we need to, to explore because it will help understand why Paul introduces what some might think is a kind of an abrupt transition, but actually is not abrupt at all. It is a very natural and logical flow of what he's doing. He is eager to, speak, to preach the Gospel, and he begins here in verse 18 with wrath. There is an implicit question in verse 17 that Paul is answering here in verse 18. The implicit question is, why must a person's righteousness come from God and be by faith alone? Why, Paul? Why is righteousness must come from the outside and be appropriated by faith alone, faith first to last? Why? Because. For. As a revelation of the Wrath of God makes abundantly clear all people are ungodly and unrighteous and actively involved in suppressing the truth. Therefore, 
the only way they can achieve righteousness is it must come from the outside to them as a gift. The only way to receive the righteousness that we do not have is by faith. In effect, this gar, this for, this conjunction here at the beginning of verse 18 really introduces the whole section of this epistle beginning in verse 18 and running all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20. It's all one big unit of thought. And it's introduced here with this reason. We don't have what it takes. It must come to us from the outside. Very simplistic terms. And Paul will now labor that point. He will bring every single one of us to the bar of justice in these next three chapters. He will indict us there and He will prove us guilty. He will strip away all righteousness that we have as that fiction or illusion that we think we have, all self-righteousness, it will be completely, entirely stripped away. He will rip the veneer off. He will show us who we really are. And then, He will show us why we must have a divine substitute in Jesus Christ. Beloved, the wrath of God is what the Gospel is based on. It's all about this. So I was talking with someone this morning. The news is not good that we don't first know how bad it really is. So this morning, as we look at verse 18 together, what I want to do with you is raise and answer four questions about the wrath of God. Raise and answer four questions about the wrath of God so that we might begin to realize how desperately we need a Savior. All of us. All the time. So let's get after it here. Number one, what is the wrath of God? It begins, as I said earlier, with understanding God is completely holy. It begins there. Understanding the, the essential attribute of God that He is holy. He is the thrice holy one. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is totally and completely distant from sin evil and corruption and its resultant filth and guilt. He distances Himself from it. He cannot stand it in His presence. He maintains and He defends His purity by rejecting, fighting against, destroying everything and everyone who is an affront to His holiness. You cannot read the Old Testament without coming to the awful reality that God stands for against everything that you are in and of yourself. When you read through the Old Testament, you recognize the fact that God is against all that I am. He hates what I do, what I think, how I behave. There are two main words for wrath in the Greek New Testament. Thumos, 
which is a passionate anger or a rage that that arises quickly and then subsides again. It's like a flash of anger. This word is used primarily in the book of Revelation. We're there at the end of the age. God's wrath, His passionate anger, His rage springs forth in those seven years of awful tribulation. But the primary New Testament word for wrath, and the word used here in verse 18 is orge. Orge. And it means a strong and settled opposition. A strong emotion. A temperament or disposition of anger. Etymologically, if you trace it back, and you've got to be careful of doing such things, but if you do trace it back there, you, there's an idea of a buildup of moisture. And so one commentator says it's like water building up behind a dam. There's probably some truth to that. Scriptures are clear. God is angry. He's angry. You know, God's love is infinitely incomprehensible. Would you agree? The love of God is infinitely incomprehensible. We cannot get our arms around it. We cannot fully plumb its depths. We cannot understand the love of God. Well, it is the same with His displeasure, His hatred, His anger, His wrath, His vengeance. It also is infinitely incomprehensible to us. One Scripture writer, book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 31, he says it is a terrifying thing to fall to the hands of the living God. It's hard to get a definition for the wrath of God. I've given you a lexical definition. A few commentators, let me just share with you John Murray in his very fine commentary on the book of Romans speaking here of the wrath of God and trying to articulate what it embodies. He says it's the holy revulsion of His being against that which is a contradiction of His holiness. A revulsion of His, of his being against that which contradicts His holiness. John Stott in his commentary on Revelation says the wrath of God is His pure and perfect antagonism to evil. Alva J. McLean in his Romans commentary says the wrath of God is His holy aversion to all that is evil and His purpose to destroy it. Charles Hodge, great Princeton theologian, says the wrath of God is His punitive justice. His determination to punish sin. There's a common thread that runs through all of those definitions. It is that it, God is passionate about sin. God is not lackadaisical. God is not of the attitude where it doesn't matter. Sin, He hates it. He's, he's repulsed. He's revulsed by it. He has a holy antagonism towards it. He is going to destroy it. He has purpose to destroy it. It's an affront to His holy being. Now, we need to clarify human anger and divine anger. Because 
we may make the mistake of equating our anger with God's. Human anger is not analogous to divine anger. It is not. Although the concept of a righteous indignation is conceivable for you and I, practically speaking, it is seldom manifested by any of us. For the most part, our anger is a product of irrational and uncontrollable emotion that results from our pride, spite, and desire for revenge. That's what causes anger to well up in my heart and yours. All about us not getting our way. God's wrath is a holy Anger entirely free of all of those toxins. Are we embarrassed by the wrath of God? Does this topic embarrass us? Do we think about God perhaps like a grandfather who behaves badly when we take him out to dinner, right? The waitress brings his meal and it's not quite the way he liked it fixed. And so he flashes out at her in anger. We all sit there with our heads down low wishing the whole incident would go away. Is that how we think about the anger or the wrath of God? The anger of God? I know we're embarrassed about it. And the reason I know we're embarrassed about it is because it's a topic we avoid. We avoid it in our own conversations one with another and we most certainly tend to avoid it in our conversations with those who are outside the faith. We want to focus on a positive message, an uplifting message. Right? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God hates your sin with a holy hatred. You repulse Him. You cannot enter into His presence. He will destroy you. Talking to the elder meeting the other night, and we were beginning to re-examine the Gospel ourselves as part of that which we want to do to be sure that we are sharp and remind ourselves on what is the essential elements of the Gospel. And so our brother... um, took us to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, and we began to make a list of what it says there about mankind. We filled half a whiteboard with a list of attributes of unredeemed humanity. And uh, it was pretty depressing. It was pretty depressing. Hi, I'm David Forsyth. I'm from Foothill Bible Church. You know... Can I share with you what the Bible says about you? You're a murderer. You're a liar, right? Deceiver. On it went. Paul doesn't seem to have that problem, though. For the wrath of God is revealed, he says. Second question for us this morning is, why is God angry? Why is God angry? According to what Paul tells us here, He is angry because, or He's angry against, right? Verse 18, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 
Ungodliness and unrighteousness is what I want to focus on. Some commentators say that these two terms or speak of impiety towards God, that is ungodliness, and injustice towards humanity. Lack of respect for God and leads to a lack of justice for people, one wrote. Others see these references. The reference to ungodliness is the breaking of the first four of the Ten Commandments and unrighteousness is the breaking of the last six. These interpretations, they have their appeal. I don't think that's what Paul's getting at here. I think these two terms, ungodliness and unrighteousness, are actually what is called a hendiatus. A hendiatus, which means one by the means of two. Two words, one concept. Paul is, by the use of these two words, I believe, communicating one big concept. And that one big concept he's communicating is that the wrath of God is poured out against the sin of idolatry. Ungodliness and unrighteousness together is the sin of idolatry. Which is the basis of all intellectual and behavioral sin. Why do I believe that? Well, there are some textual reasons here. Notice first that he says he uses the single adjective all to embrace both nouns. He doesn't say that it is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Single adjective, two nouns together. Beyond that, the next clause here in the verse to suppress the truth in unrighteousness is a single action that it describes the prior two words. They are now grouped together into this single action of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Third, the general context, beginning in verse 19, I think compels the case. It pushes us over the top where Paul begins to elaborate the idolatry of the pagan world. And together, the ungodliness and unrighteousness, they represent the one sin, and the one sin is the suppression of the truth. The suppression of the truth. The act of idolatry. Why is God angry? God is angry because His creation is filled with idolaters who suppress the truth. The word truth Alasia in the Scripture, it's more comprehensive than our English word for truth. It means that which is right, that which is true. It's often used in antithesis to unrighteousness. For example, over in chapter 2, verse 8, this same epistle. He says, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Their truth is the antithesis to unrighteousness. So it's more than just an issue of are the facts correct or not, which is typically how we use truth. It's a more comprehensive term than that. It's especially used in the New Testament of moral and religious truth. John 3.21, we won't go there. 2 Thess 2.11 and 12, you can check them on your own. Aletheia, it's, it's equivalent to that which is right and true in reference to God. Those who suppress that which is right and true in reference to God. 
is the sin of which God's wrath is building like water behind a dam. You know, it's not just that people do wrong though they know better. That's not what they're being found guilty of here in verse 18. It's not that just people do things they know they shouldn't do. That's not the sin. That's not the problem. The problem is more fundamental than that. The problem is that people have made a basic decision to live for their own glory rather than God's. There has been a fundamental decision made that they are going to live for themselves and not for their Creator. And therefore, they deliberately stifle or compress the truth. Suppress the truth. Anything that challenges that fundamental decision of life of self-centeredness, they push it away. That's the sin of idolatry. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The truth that uh, Paul is going to reveal for us in the weeks to come, verses 19 and following, early 19 through 23 here, is the self-existence and sovereignty of God. He's going to talk about the, the reality of the self-existence and sovereignty of God. And he's going to say that it's, a, that it's not only available to all of mankind, it is understood by all of mankind, yet they refuse it. Instead, you and I act like we are self-existent. We are sovereign. That we don't need God. The idiocy, by the way, of such a viewpoint is shown every single day when you sit down to eat or lay down to sleep. You are not self-existent. And the foolishness of your sovereignty is belied by the fact that you have an appointment with the undertaker. You don't know when it is. God knows. Because it's God who has scheduled your appointment. We live as if we are self-contained. We suppress the truth that reveals the contrary. A beloved truth cannot be changed. It can be stifled. It can be held down. It can be suppressed here in the text. It cannot be changed. The reality of the matter is, God is God and you are not. And I think God's favorite doctrine, I agree with R.C. Sproul, God's favorite doctrine it must be His sovereignty. And that's the one that He will least be willing to to allow you to borrow. How angry is God? Third question. Just how angry is He? It says here that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Is revealed. A present passive indicative the point of which is that there is a present tense reality that's ongoing here. 
It is not that the wrath of God will be revealed, and that is a true statement, by the way, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But there is an ongoing revealing of the wrath of God according to what Paul says here in verse 18. There is a present reality of divine judgment. You can and should know that God is angry with you. That's what the text reveals. There is a future wrath of God. Go over verses 4 and 5, chapter 2. Paul says, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There is a future wrath coming. In which He will pour out Thumas, it will erupt like a flame. All of that stored up anger and be poured out on the lives of those who have refused the only means of escape available. The righteousness that comes from outside the system by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died on that cross to suffer the wrath of His people. For those who refuse that gift, God has a special place. It's called the lake of fire. But there is an ongoing sense, a present reality that the wrath of God is being revealed. That's what the text tells us. So how is the wrath of God being revealed in the present? Where can I see its revelation? Where can I look to find it? Well, the answer is you can look just about anywhere, but let me provide for you six specific places to look. First, you may look backwards in time to the fall. Look back to the fall. Genesis Chapter 3, all the way back to Genesis, right? And there in the garden, where Adam willfully set himself up against God, took of the fruit and ate of which he was forbidden, the anger of God was revealed. Verse 17, chapter 3. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from there you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. To make sure that you understand that point, slide over a little bit to chapter 5, where we will enter what is called the graveyard of the Old Testament. And we will walk among the headstones. 
and we'll be reminded by a chorus. Verse 5. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Verse 8, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Verse 11, so all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Verse 14, so all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. Mahalalel, verse 17, and he died. Jared, verse 20, and he died. Methuselah, 969 and he died over and over and over again death for the wages of sin is death death you want to see the wrath of God being revealed look back to the garden and its outcome Or in case somehow you've missed it, just fast forward a little bit to chapter 6. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with, with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. And he washed it clean. Every single man, woman, and child. All of the animal world, with the exception of those rescued to the ark, swept away in the deluge. How serious is God in His anger and wrath about sin? He is serious enough to wipe out the population of the earth. One of the dangers, by the way, of evolution, if you were were quick enough to get it, is that it says that these early chapters of Genesis didn't really happen. Just a fable. See, beloved, without these early chapters, you have lost your understanding of who God is and what He thinks about reality. Judgment's coming. Peter says that. He says, people scoff. They tell you, you know, where is the day of judgment? You know, when's it going to come? <laughs> he says, they foolishly forget that God washed the planet clean once. Now, He won't clean it by water again. He promised us that, but He will clean it, right? This time by fire. You can keep going to the right if you wanted to. Exodus chapter 12. If you're looking to see the wrath of God revealed, here's a place that perhaps you hadn't really thought about yet, or maybe you had. Exodus 12, verses 12 and 13. Page 68 if you're using that pew Bible. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord and the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
blood smeared on the doorposts and lentil of the house, right? The angel will pass over as he goes through the land destroying the firstborn of man and beast. Beloved, the whole mosaic sacrificial system, one big bloody mess, is a vivid and constant reminder of the wrath of God against the sin of idolatry. For every Jew, they would know that. For they must three times a year go up and watch an innocent, terrified victim. What do you think those lambs and goats and bulls were doing when they smelled the blood and the death as they were chained there waiting their turn to have their throats slit? They were hardly docile. Squealing, screaming, fear in their eyes, blood flowing all over the place. The soul that sins will surely die. Go over to Luke 13. Jump forward in the New Testament. Where can I see the revelation, the wrath of God? How angry is He? Luke 13, verses 4 and 5, page 1040. If you Bible. Where can I see the revelation of the wrath of God? You can see it in natural disasters. That's what we call them, right? Insurance policies, you just call them acts of God. I don't think they do that anymore. Luke 13, verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower and Salom fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Do you think those that were swept away in the tsunami that washed the subcontinent of India two years ago were worse culprits than you? Jesus says, no, but I tell you, you must repent or you will likewise perish. Do you think the victims of New Orleans, the great hurricane and flood, were worse sinners? No. But the wrath of God poured forth Where else can I see it? Well, according to Romans chapter 1. I can see it in the breakdown of society. As God removes His restraining grace, His common grace that holds back the wickedness of the human heart. Verse 28, chapter 1, is just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and on it goes. You want to see the wrath of God? Open up the L.A. Times this morning. Almost to any page. 
and you will see the wrath of God being revealed. But the place that is revealed in greater depth, greater intensity, greater clarity than any of the things that we have looked at so far is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Where there from the cross, Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Innocent and undefiled. Crushed by His heavenly Father in order to avert or turn away the wrath of God against His people. Christ sacrificed Himself to consume the wrath of God for you and me. If you have embraced Him by faith. How much does God hate our sin? How angry is He? He's mad enough to kill His own Son. Mad enough to kill his own son. We've talked all around this, but I guess we'll raise it and formally answer it from the text. Who is he angry with? Who is he angry with? In verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against men. Against men. A reference here to heaven is to the dwelling place of God. I think it implies a universal disclosure. There is a universal disclosure here of the, of the wrath of God. That means that everybody can see it and should see it. It's not necessary for a person to hear the Christian gospel, to be acquainted in any way with the Bible in order to know the wrath of God and to know that it is directed towards them. Paul uses a general term here for men, anthropone, to describe the recipients of God's wrath. That is, mankind, humanity, all of us. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, we're called children of wrath. Children of wrath. You know, the remainder of this chapter here, verses 19 and following, it's Traditionally thought to describe uh, the idolatry of paganism. I think it does. Although there are some interesting references here. Verse 23. It talks about uh, the image of four-footed animals. That's almost identical language to Psalm 106 verse 20, which speaks of Israel's idolatry. So there's hints at Israel's idolatry as well. Chapter 2 begins, I think, clearly speaking to the Jew and the nation of Israel. Saying, who are you to sit in judgment of the pagan idolaters when you do the same things that you condemn them for? So I think Paul's statement here in verse 18 is really a statement about God's wrath is revealed against all of humanity. Paganism, religious people, those that are involved in the grossest and most abominable sexual sin, to those that create the most intricate philosophical theories for the origin of the universe and the meaning of life that exclude their Creator. 
outer idolatry, inner idolatry. That which was ensconced in the heart of first century, century Israel and beloved, that which is ensconced in your heart and mine. None of us are free from this deeply rooted abomination. Our hearts are idle factories turning out cheap substitutes for God with a dizzying pace. If you want proof, if you want proof that you are but an idle factory, reflect upon this. Jesus said the essence of true religion is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The totality of your being. That's all. That's what you are to do. To fail to do this is to love someone or something more than God. And beloved, that is idolatry. It is idolatry. And because of that, God is pouring out His wrath. A.W. Pink wrote again, he says, quote, We are ever prone to regard sin lightly, to gloss over its hideousness, to make excuses for it. But the more we study and ponder God's abhorrence of sin, this frightful vengeance upon it, the more likely we are to realize its heinousness. How bad is your sin? It is so wicked that God is pouring out His wrath. Some of you, after this morning, may need some time to pray. Be alone with your thoughts. Meditate on, consider what you've heard today. We have a place where you can do that. It's over here. There's a sign on the door. It says prayer room. It's a quiet place. You can go there. You're invited to go there. Think about what you heard. There are people that are available that can give you good biblical counsel if you choose. You just want to be alone with God. That's a place where you can go. Beloved, we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve it. But through Christ alone, we have received His mercy instead. That is the Gospel. Ron, come here please with your musicians and... Let us sing the gospel together and close this time. Huh?